Michael Emerson is a Rice University sociologist and leader of what's called the Multiracial Congregations Project. He has defined a diversified church as one where no one particular racial group makes up more than 80% of the congregation. And using this standard, Emerson speculates that there are only 8% of American Christian church congregations that would fit this classification of racial diversity. Is there any wonder that Martin Luther King Jr. once remarked that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning? And though it's true that in some regards there have been times, dark, disgusting, repulsive moments in American church history where we have been complicit in racial divisions and segregation, that we've misrepresented the essence of the gospel message. However, today, I do think that this particular criticism, and you'll hear it often, so much of America has progressed. So many different facets of our culture has diversified. And yet it seems as though the church, Christianity, is still stuck back in the 60s that the church has refused to diversify. And yet I think that this criticism, though, true at some points in history, isn't fair today. And let me give you two reasons why. First, since a local church is simply designed to reach the community around it, a church can do nothing more than simply reach or reflect the ethnic makeup of that particular community. A few years ago, Dustin Cable of the University of Virginia's Weldon Center for Public Service created a high-resolution map of America aimed at illustrating locations and various ethnicities of every single American using data from the last census, 2010. Now, to accomplish this, he did something interesting. I'm sure it took an incredible amount of work. But he assigned each person in each race a specific color, each individual, according to the census, had a color designation. Caucasians were blue, blacks were green, Hispanics were orange, Asians were red, and others, which would be Native Americans and other mixed races, were brown. Then he took all 308,745,538 dots, and he placed them on the map. Now, in doing this, Cable was able to visually illustrate a profoundly disappointing reality when it comes to America and specifically race, race relations. While almost all American cities showed vast swaths of perf purple, which was good. It represented what appeared to be racial diversity. The closer and closer and closer you zoomed in onto each city, the more patterns of racial segregation on the neighborhood level became apparent. C316.tv in the link section, I've included a link where you can go and check out this map all on your own. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. But just for my point, let's look at, at Atlanta. This is a, a wide uh, kind of macro perspective of Atlanta. And it, you see quite a bit of purple, a lot of green, but still a lot of bit of purple. And if you zoom in, you begin to see some separations of just pure color, right? of where African-American communities reside, where whites, where Hispanics. You can even see where like 
the Asian community dominates Peachtree Ridge. If you zoom in even closer kind of to where we are, look at how racially divided and segregated just Atlanta is. Now, I know what you're thinking. Duh, it's Atlanta, right? For as much as we've progressed, Atlanta's still stuck in the past. Well, LA, very liberal, right? Very progressive. Let, let me show you LA. LA's even more subdivided and segregated than Atlanta, and yet they're progressive. And if you think that's worse, look at our capital, Washington, D.C. There's literally a line of demarcation. There is the other side of the tracks in our own capital. You see, I've included this map to illustrate a point. Now, my point is not to explore the reasons why American neighborhoods are so segregated. As we know, this is a very complicated thing. It's complicated by race, complicated by economics. There are even political interests involved into why we see this in American society. But my point in bringing this to your attention is to explain how unfair it really is to blame a local church for not possessing a diversified congregation when the very community it exists to serve doesn't even transcend Michael Emerson's 80% threshold itself. Like with few exceptions, African-American churches, Hispanic churches, Korean churches, white dominated churches, they appear segregated, not because we're bigots or racists, but because we exist in communities that have yet to diversify, which mind you, is America. It's amazing. My other point this morning, and why I think this criticism is unfair of the church, that the church is stuck in the past, is that data reveals, shows that the universal church is the most diversified organization on the planet. According to the latest Pew Research study on Christianity conducted in 2010, of the roughly 2.8 billion Christians living across the world, 26% of Christians live in Europe. They're Anglo. 24% live in Sub-Sahara Africa. About the same amount. 13% of Christians live in Asia and the Pacific. And I think that that number is totally skewed because of, of the lack of information coming out of China. The underground church in China possibly could be the largest demonstration of Christianity anywhere on the planet. But according to the Pew study, it's 13%. A little under 1% of Christians live in the Middle East and Northern Africa, and that sadly is probably less because thousands upon thousands of Christians have been executed for their faith by Muslim fanatics. One third of all Christians worldwide live in the Americas, it's 37%. And you know, the unique ability of Christianity to transcend ethnic and cultural barriers it becomes even more apparent when you consider that of the approximate 300 million people living in America, 78% of whites, 85% of blacks, 45% of Asians, and 84% of Hispanics all claim to be Christian. It's amazing, but think about it. While the local church might reflect the individual ethnic culture that dominates that particular community, the church as a whole is hardly segregated. As a matter of fact, it's extremely diversified, isn't it? In actuality, you would be hard-pressed, I challenge you to, to find a better example of a genuine, multicultural, 
racially diverse global movement than a typical Sunday morning when saints, Christian saints from across the globe gather as a church, as the bride of Christ to worship God. It's quite incredible. Though the church is a cultural cornucopia, a racial kaleidoscope of color. Yeah, that was a sentence that included kaleidoscope and cornucopia. I felt good about that. (laughs) This reality, the fact that we see this, it demonstrates an awesome reality of what Jesus is doing in the world. That it knows no race, it knows no genders, it knows no bounds. That the gospel is for human beings, humanity. But as diversified as we see things, it becomes even more incredible, more awe-inspiring when you consider Christianity and its origin. I mean, think about it for a moment. I don't know if you've ever considered it. I was chewing on it this week. But I mean, how does a religious movement started by a Jewish carpenter from a poor town of Nazareth, living in first century Judea, how does this movement started by that man grow to impact every single nation on the planet? I mean, regardless of language, culture, I mean, how does something started by one Jewish man in the first century in Jewish lands, how does it grow to like dominate the planet, especially when the people who formed the first church were not what we would consider multi- multiculturalists? As a matter of fact, you'd probably, and, and I use this word uh, lightly because it's loaded, but they were racists. Let's just be honest. The apostles, members of the first century church, they didn't like other nations. They didn't like other skin colors. They liked other Jews. And that was about it. Now, in order to understand all of this, you should realize that the answer to that question, how does Christianity look the way it does today when it started like that? The answer is found in Acts chapter 10. Acts 10. Now, in his book, The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell, pretty trippy looking dude, he records or he defines a tipping point as a magical moment when an idea, trend, or social behavior crosses a threshold where it tips and it spreads like wildfire. And with this definition in mind, please realize that in many ways, Acts chapter 10 records a tipping point of sorts. When the gospel of Jesus leaps from being just a regional movement comprised of ethnic Jews to becoming a global phenomenon in the course of just a few years. Please understand, this one event, Acts chapter 10, is so revolutionary that it single-handedly changed the entire course of human history. I don't exaggerate. You see, without Acts chapter 10 and your Bible, nothing follows it. We wouldn't be here today. And not only that, but most of Western civilization without Acts 10 would have failed to materialize. It is an awesome chapter in your Bible. Now, in order to grasp the significance of Acts 10, 
it's important that we first start by explaining why the Jews had developed such a hatred to the Gentile world. You know, I think as, as Christians, we've just kind of fallen into the trap of just accepting certain things without really considering how they developed. Because if you're a student of scripture, this reality that in the first century, the Jews hated the Gentiles, it's actually bizarre. Like for a moment, consider that if you know anything of the Old Testament, the problem with the Hebrew people, God's people, was not that they hated the Gentiles or other nations. Actually, the sad tale of the Old Testament is that they loved the Gentiles way too much. They became infatuated with becoming like the other nations. They intermarried with the other nations. They compromised and entered into idolatry. And as a result of not fulfilling or living up to the ideal to be a people set apart, God had to judge them. The 10 northern tribes of Israel are conquered by Assyria, sent out into the world. They never return. The southern kingdom of Judah gets dominated by Babylon. Those people taken into exile only to 70 years later, when Babylon crashes and Persia emerges, that they're allowed to come back to the land. Now, this is when things become interesting. So if you read through the Old Testament, the idea of the Jews hating the Gentiles is foreign. It doesn't jive. It doesn't fit. Their whole problem isn't that they hated them. It's that they loved them way too much. And yet when they return from exile, between the close of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, something ends up developing within this group of people that had returned. You see, they were adamant determined, dedicated to not repeat past mistakes. Like after being conquered and being removed from the land that they had been given, only to spend 70 years in Babylon, when they came back, it's like they put together a checklist. These were the reasons why all this happened. And so this will be our blueprint for ensuring it never happens again. You see, the Jews became very legalistic and a desire to not repeat past mistakes, sadly, their perspective of the Gentiles swung to another sad extreme. In post-exile Judaism, the Hebrew people, they ended up falsely viewing their divine favor and God's desire that they remain holy as the fundamental basis for racial prejudice and bigotry. Tragically, the Jews believed that they had been chosen by God because they were better than everyone else. Sad. Be beyond having a religious justification behind their segregation, their prejudice, it's also natural to reason that 500 years of being dominated and subjugated by world powers from Assyria to Babylon to Persia and then Greece and Rome that they had just, they really didn't like the other nations. It would be like America getting conquered and you just having a natural animus towards whoever conquered us, right? I mean, that would be only natural. And these people, because they had been dominated year after year after year after year, they not only had a religious framework for why they should hate these people, but they had a practical reason why they should hate these people. They were conquered. Now, here's my point. It's amazing to consider that God deliberately chooses to use a group of Jewish men to take the gospel across racial barriers, a group of men 
who since birth have been raised in a culture that taught them from the pulpits that the Gentiles only existed to stoke the fires of hell for bad Jews. Any interaction with Gentiles was strictly forbidden in the culture, the Jewish culture that surrounded the first century church. Like this dynamic would be like God today, specifically choosing, calling out members of Westboro Baptist Church. You know, those crazy people that hold up signs and are all anti-homosexuals and anti-soldiers and anti-war. They say they're a church, they're not. And they're not even Christians, like, and they're not Baptists. It's all funny. Westboro Baptist Church, not a church, nor are they Baptists, but they just have hijacked the name. It's like 10 people, by the way. And yet they hold up these signs. It would be like, what's happening here in Acts 10 would be like God saying, yo, Westboro Baptist Church, I'm gonna call you to San Francisco to reach the gay communities of America. Like that would be unbelievable, right? It would be as far from your imagination. This is the context of Acts 10. You know, another component essential to our understanding of Acts 10 is that while this was the Jewish perspective of the day, it was totally out of line with the will of God. And that's an important point to make. They were God's people. They were chosen to represent God, but they had they had failed in the task. Like their hatred of the Gentiles did not reflect God's feelings towards the Gentiles. Yes, they were God's chosen people, not because they were better than anyone else, but because God had made the decision to use them to be a light into the rest of the world, a light of revelation. God had specifically called out Abraham had communicated to Abraham that it would be through him and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, that his plan of redemption would work itself through the world, but it would never be racially specific. On three occasions, as a matter of fact, Genesis 18, 22, and 26, God told Abraham that it would be through his seed, that note, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And not only does their bigotry, their hatred, not fall in line with Old Testament scripture, what God had communicated. But Jesus, Jesus on many occasions was constantly working to try to change the perspective of his disciples and erode away this accepted prejudice. And Jesus is teaching. He's over and over and over again communicating not only God's love for the world, but his mission to save the world. The most famous verse in all of scripture, John 3, 16, we read, for God so loved whom? The world, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then I love the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world as the Jews had done, but that the world through Jesus might be saved. So Jesus is teaching many examples of him attacking this prejudice speaking against it. But you know his ministry? Jesus practiced what he preached. In Mark chapter 7, we have an, an event. I, I think one of the, the, the least talked about or taught on passages that presents such a radical thing. In Mark 7, Jesus takes this 12 group of hooded racists 
to Gentile areas, Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities. And he engages in a couple months of radical ministry. No doubt, eroding away, attacking these disciples is prejudice. If Jesus was willing to not only teach God's love for the world, but then show God's love for the world by going into these areas, how could they hold their resentment? But then you have his commission, right? I mean, Jesus' commission was clear. It was clear. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus told them that they should be, would be, shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and where? To the ends of the earth. It's been said that old prejudices die hard. If you've grown up in the South, where you have multi-generations in the South, you know this to be true with your grandparents and your great-grandparents and their perspectives on things. Old prejudices die hard. With that in mind, understand as we approach Acts 10, understand this revolutionary moment was 10 years in the making. It's as though God employed the baby steps model as laid out in Bill Murray's classic, What About Bob? You know, like in order to really take that step, like you gotta do baby steps. I love this movie. Dr. Leo Marvin tells Bill Murray, you know, baby steps. You know, this great classic where he's got a whole, whole shelf of the book that he wrote, you know? And he pulls that and he's like, instead of thinking how to get home, just think of how to get out of the room. You know, Bill Murray's like baby steps and he's walking around baby steps. I love this movie. But the point kind of illustrates it because God took a page out of this playbook. He knew in his wisdom that in order for these Hebrew Christians to be willing to take the gospel into the Gentile world, in order for them to be willing to cross such a big divide, several lesser but still significant baby steps had to occur first. We've already noted in our travels through Acts two of these baby steps, the gospel making its way from Jewish territory into Samaritan territory. The Samaritans were viewed as heretics. They were also hated by the Jewish people. They were half Jews, half Assyrians. And yet Philip takes the gospel to Samaria. There's a revival that takes place and we're told that Peter and John go to check things out. And not only are they amazed by what they see, but they pray that these believers, these new believers, might receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter and John, as they're making their way back to Jerusalem, stop in all of the cities, preaching the gospel to people that they hated before. But we also noted that at this point, Christianity had, had made a stark break from Judaism by accepting women disciples. We noted that last Sunday when we were looking at Tabitha, that she was a certain disciple in Joppa. That word's unique to all of scripture and would have never occurred in Judaism, a very male-dominated religious structure, and yet Jesus had called women. And guess who comes when he hears that Tabitha has died? A man who recognized it and who has already crossed this particular divide, taken a baby step, so to speak, was Peter, right? As we looked at in Acts 9, it's Peter that goes and prays, and ultimately Tabitha's resurrected. But there's a final detail that's significant. 
that we should take a moment and consider, and that is the last mention of Acts 9, that following Tabitha's resurrection, Peter stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Now, why is this significant? A tanner. When we think of a tanner, we kind of think of a hotel, like he's a tanner of a hotel. He's hospitable. That's not what this word means. It's not what the vocation or the job was. The job of a tanner, he was, for the most part, a, a leathersmith. Like he took carcasses, skins of animals, and he made things from wineskins to tents to certain clothing. His job was to work with dead animals. And with this in mind, according to Jewish law and tradition, not only Simon, but anyone that would stay in his home would be considered ceremonially unclean. You wouldn't be allowed to go and worship God in the temple. You see, Simon, Simon was a religious and social outcast. According to Jewish traditions, you, don't, you won't find this in scripture, but the Talmud, the Mishnah, a tanner's house had to be 50 paces outside of any town. And it had to be downwind. The smell of rotting flesh in animals was apparently so repulsive that they didn't want him in town, certain zoning restrictions and whatnot. Not only that, but according to Jewish tradition, if let's say you married a man and he had a certain job, he was a fisherman, but the economy ebbs and flows and he loses his business and he decides at that juncture to be a tanner. According to Jewish traditions, you would have as a woman, as a woman, legal grounds for divorce. That's how much visceral hatred, how much disdain the Jews had towards this particular profession. Now, it's interesting because here we have Peter in Joppa, and where does he decide to hang out? In the home of Simon the Tanner. Peter, he's taken several important baby steps. He's rejected Jewish prejudice towards the Samaritans. He's taken a baby step in regards to the Jewish discrimination long held towards women. And now, Peter is demonstrating to us an understanding that what God has cleansed, no doubt Simon being a believer, bought by the blood of Christ, man cannot call unclean. We'll see this now carry over into another step towards the home of Cornelius. Now, before we actually dive into chapter 10, I just want to recap three important things. Keep in mind as we move into the text. One, God's plan has always been to reach the world, both Jew and Gentile, with the gospel. Two, the mechanism by which God had always chosen to accomplish this through had been the Jewish people. Though the nation of Israel had failed, now he's going to call Jewish Christian men, who, by the way, still hold on to longstanding prejudices. But thirdly, knowing what it would take for Peter to be obedient to cross this racial barrier, Jesus has spent the last several years preparing him for this important moment. And on a side note, I find that so encouraging, don't you? That when Jesus is going to ask us to do something radical, ask us to do something revolutionary, ask us to do something totally not consistent or in line with what we would maybe typically do or be okay with, that instead of just asking us to jump off the cliff, that Jesus is willing to employ the baby step model in our lives. One little step after a time of just being obedient. I like that about God. 
If Jesus had told Peter to do this in the beginning, none of these apostles would have done it. But after a series of incremental steps, we find that things have been primed, that Peter is now ready. So, verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea. His name was Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. A devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Now, as we move from chapter 9 to chapter 10, Luke shifts the story in two ways. First, we move 30 miles north from Joppa, a port town, up the Mediterranean, up the coastline, to Caesarea, Caesarea by the sea. It's an awesome city, by the way. You can visit the ruins today. It was built by Herod the Great. And it was such an incredible engineering marvel, his desire to create Rome away from Rome, that Caesarea was adopted as the Roman capital of this particular area, the province of Judea. It would be home to the Roman governor, most of the Roman diplomats, any Roman forces in this particular neck of the woods. An awesome city. So we shift 30 miles north from Joppa to Caesarea, and we move from the apostle Peter to now looking at a man named Cornelius. Let's take a moment and set up a profile of Cornelius. First, we're told that Cornelius was a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. The Italian Regiment, according to Roman historical documents, was a famous special forces unit comprised of a thousand rigorously trained, combat-ready Roman soldiers. You can assume that they were stationed in Judea not only to protect Roman interest in the area, but Judea at this time was a hotbed for insurrection. Constant problems would arise. This tells us a couple important things about Cornelius. He was ethnically Roman. No slave or, um, or purchased citizen, so to speak, would have been allowed to have been part of such a particular unit. So Cornelius is ethnically Roman. He is battle-tested, battle-worn. This man knows what combat is like. He's a strong man. He's been seasoned by war. He's a man of discipline. We're also told that he's a centurion. And in the Roman military hierarchy, this would indicate that Cornelius had charge over about 100 men. He was a man of high integrity. Would have had to have been to have led men into battle. His very actions had garnered a position of leadership, not by his words. A centurion didn't speak a good game. He walked the walk. He earned the trust of men to be promoted to lead them into battle. Cornelius also was a devout man. We're told one who feared God with all of his household. In the Greek, this word devout suggests more than just an inner piety, more than just reverence. Cornelius possessed a genuine sincerity, deep conviction. Now, while we're not given the specifics, our text does indicate that Cornelius, at some point, for some reason, had come to accept, recognize the true God of Israel, that he had rejected the pantheon of Roman gods and was following the true God, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but there would have been a limitation here. You see, it wasn't abnormal for Gentiles to reject the idols or the gods of their local ethnicity and and follow the true God of Israel. There's many examples in scripture of this happening, even amongst Gentiles, but the mechanism in place according to Judaism, is that if you were a Gentile and you came like Cornelius to an understanding, an acceptance of the God of Israel being dominant over all, well, you could become a Jewish proselyte. And what that would include would be a total adopting of Jewish culture, Jewish religion, Jewish ethnicity. As a Roman, Cornelius, in order to truly act upon his belief would have had to have been circumcised. Yeah, it's a downer. He would have had to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He would have had to obey the strictness of the Roman law. He would have had to have adopted religious customs. You see, I bring this up because though Cornelius had a love for God, had a conviction towards God, at the same time, there's no way that he could be a proselyte because of his vocation as a Roman, as a soldier, as a leader of men. It wasn't an option. There's no way he could keep the Sabbath day holy. It wouldn't fly with his superiors. His men would have looked at him differently after the circumcision thing. Like it's just something that he wouldn't have been able to do. And so he has this devotion but it's hard for him to act upon it. It should also be pointed out, and I love this, that Cornelius was a man of profound influence. Not only will chapter 10 illustrate the incredible impact he had on his servants, the soldiers under his command, even his closest friends, but Luke tells us here that he was a devout man, that he feared God with all of his household. He was devout, but his faith was infectious. That his household had come to share his convictions concerning the God of Israel. Influence. You know, influence is an interesting word because as the role of husband, as the role of father, influence automatically comes with the title. As a matter of fact, it's something that you can't escape. Men, Your influence in your home is something you cannot avoid. Your actions or your inactions will either prove to influence your family for good or will prove to influence them in a negative way. It will damage them or uplift them. It's entirely up to you. A man and his influence is something he can never run from. Guys, I hope you understand as a husband or a father, God has made it your responsibility to not only provide for and ensure the emotional well-being of your wife and kids, but your chief job of all is to care for their spiritual well-being. That's your job. You know, men, when it comes to finances, Like we accept that particular job, that particular role, we kind of man up. Like we we recognize even within our society, 
our responsibility to take care of our family. Now, that doesn't mean that a woman can't do it or any of that, but just as a man, we, we recognize that need. It's something that's built in. But you know, men in our society, often, if we're gonna neglect something, it ends up being the emotional well-being of our family or the spiritual well-being of our family. And you know, I have found that we often shift those responsibilities as men to the church. Please understand, guys, the church cannot usurp your role as a man over your family. Your job, according to scripture, is to be prophet, priest, and king. Your job is to represent Jesus. And as it's your job, you will stand before God to give an account. Now the church, we can help. We can come alongside. But we cannot do the job for you. We can only complement it or supplement it. As a youth pastor, over and over and over again, I saw a trend that it was so easy in the face of problems, emotional problems particularly, and spiritual problems particularly, for a man to just, well, to do what Adam did, and that is to blame someone else. Specifically, the church. I can't tell you how often I've seen a child go rogue, go prodigal. It happens. And you know, as the family's dealing with the fallout and the issue, instead of a man looking in the mirror and taking ownership and being a problem solver, being like Jesus, instead he resorts to our tendency of being Adam and blaming someone else. It's amazing to me as a youth pastor how much blame I got for kids that aren't mine. Like, like seriously, I, I, I would have them for 35 minutes to teach them God's word. And yet if they go rogue, that's my fault. When if the man looked in the mirror, he's never had a conversation with his kids about the Lord. He's never led a devotion at his home. He's never made Bible reading and devotions. and pro He's never led his family spiritually, but I'm the fault. You do nothing six days a week. And yet I'm faithful with my one day, but it's my fault. Like fellas, when you face an issue at home, it will be easy for you to blame the church. But I would encourage you to man up, look in the mirror, and own something. Well, my wife is struggling having connections at the church. Bunch of mean women. Really? Like, here, really? A bunch of mean women at Calvary 316. Just really unloving, closed-minded. Now, I think that's as far from the truth as possible, but... but Fella, let me ask you, if your wife is struggling with emotional, relational connections, what are you doing about it? You can blame the church, but what are you doing to solve the problem? When was the last time you invited another couple? For lunch after church. Or do you make Sunday morning attendance a priority? Or even better, are you volunteering to take care of the kids so your wife can go? and enjoy one of the sisterhood events and make connections. You can blame the church. We get blamed a lot for a lot of things. But as men, our job is to influence our own home. Cornelius was a man who influenced his own home. Now that doesn't mean that he lorded it over. You know, that never works. You can beat the Bible into your kid's brain and they will beat it right back out and run from you. Like influence happens. I love what Will Arnett 
old Scottish preacher, he said concerning this topic, he said, grace, grace flows down like water so that from the head of the house, it reaches the youngest. Why do we follow Jesus? The law or because of his grace? I mean, your, your kids need to understand God's grace through you in particular. But he continues, he says, parents, bring your house to the church and bring the church to your house. And I think that's a, a wonderful exhortation for all of us. Cornelius, we're told, also gave alms generously to the poor. So he was benevolent, he was generous. His love for God demonstrated in a love for people, similar to Tabitha last Sunday. We're also told that Cornelius prayed to God always. A man of prayer. A man that wasn't so prideful or so haughty that he didn't need God's help or that he didn't solicit God for guidance. You know, you would think by this profile of Cornelius that he was already a believer, right? I mean, think about it for a moment. Cornelius is a man with a good reputation. We'll find later on the whole community appreciates Cornelius. He's a good man and he's religious. Never misses a Sunday morning. Is always there at church, volunteering when it's necessary, pitching in and he prays. Oh, he prays. He's a good man and he's religious and what a man of prayer. Pillar in the community. He's, and he's generous. He's generous. He loves people. I mean, you look at Cornelius and you're like, wait a second, that guy's a Christian. If you bumped into Cornelius on the street today, you'd be like, yeah, man, brother in Jesus. And yet the reality of our passage of the context is that in spite of all of these things, if Cornelius had died before Peter arrives, he would have gone straight to hell. That none of these things, being religious or being good or praying or giving, None of these things save a soul. See, Cornelius was still lost in his trespasses. A preacher that I love to listen to, his name's Damian Kyle, he said concerning this passage that the greatest threat to people coming into a personal relationship with God, <laughs> it's not sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but is instead when people get settled into a religious system thinking it's the way that they can be saved. That is not how you're saved. But verse three, about the ninth hour of the day, makes it 3 p.m., which was the time of evening sacrifice when the Jews typically prayed. Cornelius saw clearly in a vision, which verse 30 will tell us he's fasting and praying at this hour. He get, gets this vision. And an angel of God comes in and says to him, Cornelius, that can be good or bad when angels know your name. You figure that out on your own. I guess it's the context of what you're doing at the time. If you're praying and an angel's like Cornelius, that's probably a good exchange with an angel. If you're doing something you're not and you hear from an angel, Cornelius, not cool, like not good. Lightning bolt coming next. And he observed him, Cornelius. He's freaked out. He's afraid. And he says, he says, what is it, Lord? So the angel said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before the Lord, before God. So send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, 
a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Now, now there's two observations that I, I want to make about this, the, the, this little section of Scripture. First, you know, there is a, I think, a falsehood that permeates Christian culture, and that is that God doesn't hear the prayers of the unbeliever. That your prayers can't be heard. But wait a second, Cornelius's were, right? I mean, we have an example here of a man that's not saved, but whose prayers have gone up before the Lord as a memorial, whose prayers have been heard by God to the point that God has now responded to them by sending an angel, providing him instructions on what he must do. Uh, please understand that the prayers God doesn't hear are the prayers of the rebellious who cry out for mercy. But the prayers of the seeker, the prayer of the soul that's sick of this world and is longing for something more, has experienced the emptiness of religion, knows that it only keeps him on the outside looking in because I can never be good enough, which was Cornelius. He recognized who God was, but the religion of Judaism said, you can't do it. You're not included. You're an outcast. And his heart is burdened. You know, it's interesting. Will Arnett, he makes this observation. He says, we know by the answer sent what the centurion's prayer was because it's not recorded. In essence, that the answer is an echo of the request and the answer is to show him the way of life, that he will tell you what you must do. Cornelius wants nothing more than to know God wants nothing more than God to change his life, and he's crying out. He's doing everything he can. He has set the scene, and God hears that prayer, the prayer of the seeker. I hope you understand this morning, if you don't know Jesus, but you recognize there's a God, and you have been asking, you have been seeking, you have been soliciting that God to reveal himself, to make your path clear, to open your eyes, that your prayers have gone as a memorial before the Lord. And maybe that's why you're sitting here this morning because God is answering that request. He's praying, God, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? And then I love the fact, and it's interesting, like couldn't God have just used the angel right then to tell him what he was supposed to do? Or couldn't have God just done? Like, like why does this dynamic unfold the way that it does? And I think it's significant. It's because God uses men, not angels, to share the gospel message. You want to you know, Cornelius, what you're supposed to do? Well, there's a man. You send for him, and he'll come, and he'll answer your questions. He will tell you about Jesus. He will share with you the gift of life. The angel's purpose was not to share the gospel, but was to direct Cornelius to a man who would share with him the gospel. You know, while, I mean, I guess angels are still deployed in, in regards to, to some matters similar to this, God is still doing this. This is his blueprint. That when he hears the cry of the seeker and when he speaks into that person's life, you know what he does? Is he brings, maybe he stirs to their mind a person and whispers into the deepness of their soul, you know, something's different about that person 
They seem to have an answer in a world filled with questions. And I should just ask them, are you ready for that moment? We've talked about it before, a witness, to be a witness. It's not what you do, it's who you are. That you are always a witness. That you are witnessing by the way that you live, the words that you speak, that the world is to see you and do what? Come for answers because you have the key that unlocks it all. That salvation comes through Jesus and, and his work on the cross alone. It's an awesome reality. Are you open to be used by God in such a way? <laughs> Peter, he is in Joppa. He's got no idea that one of the most radical ministry evangelistic opportunities the world has ever seen is about to come to his door. You never know what God's doing in the heart of the person that just asked you a question. What God has done to lay a framework. You know, sometimes you, you don't have to feel a burden to say everything, but to just tell them that Jesus loves them and cares about them. Last night we went to a restaurant and I asked our waiter. I said, man, we're about to pray for our food. And this is, was downtown, kind of a trendy restaurant. I said, we're about to pray for our food. Is there anything I can pray for you about? The dude was shocked, like out of his mind. He's like, no one's ever asked me that before. I believe in prayer, but no one's ever, at, like, and he gave me an answer. He was like, yes, I could use some prayer. And it was just a simple opportunity. Are you looking for them? Are you open to them? Huh, the angel. The angel departs. And Cornelius, he immediately obeys, doesn't he? Because we're told that he calls two of his household servants and a devout soldier. I think the servants will, will make a plea and the soldier will just arrest Peter. Like Cornelius is serious. I'm supposed to get you up here and send the servants. And if not, there's a soldier that's gonna take you into custody. And he explained all these things to them and he sends them to Joppa. And that's where we'll pick up our story next Sunday. So Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, what it says to us.